Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, This is Why I Have Come, Healing and Wholeness for Body and Soul. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 5th, 2012. <clears throat> On the first page of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus begins his public ministry with two highly symbolic acts, his baptism by the Spirit in the river and his temptation by Satan in the desert. These parabolic actions were like contemporary street theater. Their effect was electric. They provoked public controversy. Who was this man and what was he doing? <clears throat> People were amazed, writes Mark, News spread quickly. At Peter's mother-in-law, the whole town gathered at the door. A few days later in Capernaum, the crowds were even bigger. Mark writes, so many people gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. People kept pushing and shoving, and the stories kept spreading. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in a lonely place. It was just as well, for Mark says his habit was to rise in the early morning darkness and find a solitary place to pray. <clears throat> Spirit baptism and satanic temptation were so central to the identity of Jesus that both incidents are included in all three synoptic gospels. And Jesus was crystal clear about what they meant. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The religiously righteous thus complained. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They stigmatized him as a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. But what they intended as a moral slander, he took as divine confirmation. <clears throat> With his baptism and temptation, Jesus identified with people who were spiritually sick and morally impure. And when on that first page of Mark, he invited people to come, follow me, he invited us to do the same today. But there was more. In addition to embracing the morally impure, Jesus healed the physically infirm. He cared as much about sickness of body as he did sins of the soul. He healed the body of Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Then in the synagogue, he healed the mind of a man with an unclean spirit. In the story of the paralytic man, one page later, he combined the healing of body and spirit into a sort of psychosomatic unity. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus assured the man, and then get up, take up your mat, and walk. This is why I have come, Jesus told the crowds, to proclaim and to perform God's healing of body, mind, and spirit. And this is why every Sunday in our Eucharistic liturgy, the congregation confesses with confidence rather than with fear or shame we break this bread for our own brokenness. 
Rightly understood, our confession of brokenness of body and soul is a celebration rather than a lamentation. For in it, the spiritual and physical frailty of humanity meet the compassion of God. <clears throat> Embracing our physical and spiritual brokenness is important because we know that not everyone experiences healing, not now and not in Jesus' day. My mother, a church organist, battled severe clinical depression the last 25 years of her life. And over the Christmas holidays, we learned that a family friend died while waiting for a lung transplant after a long struggle with pulmonary hypertension. She was only 27. We'll never know why some people experience in healing and others don't. But instead of fruitless speculation, the 4th century mothers and fathers offered some ruthlessly realistic consolation. Expect trials until your last breath, said St. Anthony the Great. I used to think of the desert monastics as Christian superheroes. I couldn't have been more wrong. And given that these oddball saints are so far removed from our own time, place, and culture, I kept wondering what drew me to them rather than, the his rather than just historical cur curiosity. A few thousand pages later, I realized that I loved them for what John Chrysogonus calls their spirituality of imperfection. They helped me to make peace with my own physical infirmities and spiritual imperfections. The early ascetics fled to the solitude of the desert to seek what the 4th century John Cassian called integrity of heart or integral wholeness. Seeking personal transformation and not mere theological information, they favored the voice of experience over theoretical claims and human healing over book learning. But the conclusions of their spiritual experiment are not what you might expect. With remarkable candor, brutal realism, unqualified empathy, and wry humor, they described how in the vast nothingness of the Egyptian desert, they discovered a cacophony of voices in the interior geography of the human heart. They sought wholeness, but discovered brokenness. And they embraced their brokenness, says Cassian, without any obfuscating embarrassment, and without ever despising anyone in belittling fashion. The institutes and the conferences of Cassian read like a modern therapist's clinical observations. He gives detailed descriptions of lethargy, sleeplessness, unsettling dreams, impulsive urges, self-justification, seething emotions, sexual fantasies, pious pretense that masked its virtue, self-deception, clerical ambition, and the desire to dominate, crushing despair, confusion, wild mood swings, flattery, and the dreaded noonday demon of asadia, a wearied or anxious heart that suggests close parallels to clinical depression. And that's not even the worst part. Cassian also admits, and here I quote, 
There are many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. And similarly, his friend Germanus observes how, quote, superfluous thoughts insinuate themselves into us so subtly and hiddenly when we do not even want them, and indeed do not even know of them, that it is very difficult not only to cast them out, but even to understand them and to catch hold of them. Despite their ruthless realism about our faults and failures, the desert monks don't, didn't live like helpless or hopeless victims. Rather, they exuded confidence in God's unconditional love. They showed tenderness and patience toward one another and to their own selves. They avoided the faintest hint of judgmentalism, rejected every manifestation of extremist zeal, and chose not to compare themselves with others or even to be overly anxious about their progress. We are, concluded Cassian, not angels, but only human beings. In this week's Old Testament reading from Isaiah, Isaiah's mighty God, so absolutely other, looks down upon us like grasshoppers, and yet he's nevertheless tender in his love. Be assured, says Isaiah, your way is not hidden from God. He never grows weary or tired. His empathy and understanding of our human frailties knows no boundaries. Isaiah acknowledges that we grow weary and weak, and that even vigorous youth stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And in the words of this week's psalm, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. <clears throat> For books this week, we have a guest book review by Brad Keister. The title of the book is Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. The author of the book is Eric Metaxas, Nashville, Thomas Nelson, 2010, 624 pages. This biography of Bonhoeffer follows another recent book by Eric Metaxas called Amazing Grace that was released together with a feature film. It's difficult for many Americans to understand the Germany of the 1930s from an ocean away and now decades into the past, but Metaxas provides an amply successful narrative. So effective, indeed, that it brings the reader face to face with the profound depth of evil that Adolf Hitler brought to the world and pushed relentlessly into every corner of his realm. Modern media can make us numb to reports of unspeakable atrocities. In Nazi Germany, such acts were part of a grand perspective that was kept from public view, but made some of Hitler's generals physically sick as they learned of it. In the midst of this was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who saw and felt to the core of his being more clearly than most what was happening around him during this time. Bonhoeffer was the son of a prominent neurologist, among other gifted siblings in a family that enjoyed privileges in society. His parents had great love for each other and imparted that love and a strong family bond to their children. 
along with a sense of discipline and duty. Bonhoeffer could easily have had a distinguished career as a seminary professor, but his devotion to Jesus Christ compelled him to address the pressing challenges of his time, and he feared the risk of seclusion in an abstract world of theology. For all of his adult life, he struggled with the question, what is a good choice when evil is pervasive and all options seem to carry unacceptable consequences? His journey took him in directions that he would never have imagined at the outset. He built upon his experiences, which included a trip to New York in the 1920s, where he saw emptiness at Union Seminary and Riverside Church, and a grounded real faith at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. <clears throat> in the end, he saw it as God's personal call that he must work to eliminate Hitler as the only solution to the desperate state of evil that filled the world. He obtained a position in the Abwehr, a German intelligence agency that was often at odds with the SS, using it to gain access to information and key allies in assassination plots. He never judged others for taking different paths. In fact, many close friends were sometimes puzzled by Bonhoeffer's actions, some involving secrets he couldn't divulge. Not knowing whether he was acting like a pro-Nazi or a Christian. Bonhoeffer concluded that making decisions based upon a theology alone was not sufficient in such a chaotic world. Only God's leading through his personal relationship with Jesus would be enough for him to persevere. An assassination attempt in July 1944 failed, and the SS finally caught up with Bonhoeffer, whereupon he was imprisoned. He and other co-conspirators were hanged in 1945 at Flossenburg Prison, just two weeks before the prison was liberated by the Allies, probably on the direct and personal order of Hitler, who, even knowing that the end of the Reich was near, chose to carry out yet one more vindictive act. Executions also claimed the lives of Bonhoeffer's brother Klaus and two brothers-in-law. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's legacy is, of course, his book, Ethics, The Cost of Discipleship, Letters and Papers from Prison, among many others. After reading this skillful biography by Metaxas, it's difficult to imagine understanding Bonhoeffer's work without knowing his life. The title of the book is Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy by Eric Metaxas. For film this week, I review a title called A Walk to Beautiful, 2007. The film is from Ethiopia. I can all but guarantee that this 53-minute film by Novo will be one of the most inspirational movies you'll ever watch. It tells the stories of three Ethiopian women, Ehu, Wubuti, and Almaz, who suffer from what's called obstetric fistula, a hole between either the rectum and vagina or between the bladder and the vagina. It occurs during birth due usually to obstructed labor in an undersized pelvis and results in chronic incontinence and infection. 
The combination of physical suffering, psychological trauma, and social stigma is, of course, horrific. The three women make it to the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital, founded in 1974 by the gynecologists Reginald and Catherine Hamlin, who went to Ethiopia in 1959. Although Catherine Hamlin does some narration and is the public superstar of this story, she still works there at the age of 87. The film does an excellent job of featuring the African surgeons, nurses, staff, and administrators. The hospital performs 30 surgeries a week, free of charge, 34,000 to date, and with a 93% success rate. When the women leave the hospital, they're given new clothes to symbolize their new life. A Walk to Beautiful, 2007, from Ethiopia. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called The Opening of Eyes by David White. The poem is taken from his book, Songs for Coming Home, 1984. David White, The Opening of Eyes. That day I saw beneath dark clouds the passing light over the water, and I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I had before, life is no passing memory of what has been, nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart, after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is the man throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven and finding himself astonished, opened at last, fallen in love with solid ground. The Opening of Eyes by David White Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 5th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.